0: I was backstage with the Rolling Stones, and uh, and I didn't talk to Mick, but um, we crossed eyes a few times, and about an hour or so into the show, he takes a break and goes off, and then he comes back about 20 minutes later, and somehow our eyes locked, and he looked at me and kind of went, like, what the hell am I doing up here, you know? Um, I, I just think it's the passion. Um, the fact that I'm doing my one-man show, I never thought it was going to happen. I, it was a dream, and you got to have dreams, but... Um we started working on this 10, 12 years ago, and the fact that it happened so quickly is somewhat amazing. But you got to put yourself in those situations. If you sit home and say, you know what I could do or know what I should do? It's not going to help you. When people say to me, I want to be a performer, how do I do it? I said, you go out and perform. You MC weddings, bar mitzvahs, dog shows, wakes, whatever you can do. Get in front of an audience until you're comfortable. And people keep asking me, am I nervous about doing the show in New York? And the answer is, for the first time, I'm not. I really feel that... All the work I've done up to this point is led to this. And I feel that I'm more ready for this than anything I've ever done. So, therefore, I, I hope I'm a little nervous because I think it helps. Uh, but I'm super confident. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Mark Summers Unwraps. I'm uh, more than excited about this particular episode. I've been trying to get this man on our program for uh, for months and uh, backed you into it. I've been it.
1: sleeping. <laughs>
0: Richard Kind is our guest. Uh, You
1: were in London and Paris? So I I get offered pseudolus. in A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, which is an absolute unbreakable machine. It is brilliant. And I happen to have known Larry Gelbart, and I spoke at his memorial. I'm very excited. Four weeks of rehearsal in London. Then we go to Paris for about two and a half weeks rehearsal, and then we go up at the Lido. Oh, my on the Champs-Élysées. I mean, you go in, you come out the exit, you turn right, and there's the Arc de Triomphe. My apartment, three bedrooms, three or four blocks from the Champs-Élysées. It's crazy. Three-bedroom apartment. My kids are going to come visit at Christmas. It's perfect, and it's the greatest play. The director, known, he's known for directing Cirque du Soleil, uh, directing uh, Vegas Reviews, and directing operettas, his most famous thing, his claim to fame, was doing the physical comedy for a show called One Man, Two Governors, mm-hmm. which James Corden, uh, it, James Corden it. Did, did brilliantly. Yep. So he was, And you know how brilliant the physical comedy It was comedy. fantastic. Fantastic! But the play was directed by a guy named Nicholas Heitner. Nicholas Heitner is a director. This guy directs comedy bits but in my opinion it doesn't have a character through line he doesn't know the text he doesn't study the text he wants funny with that and that play is not it although it's hilariously funny it comes out of situation and characters it's not how he worked I got a director. He goes, yeah, but you're doing it with your head down and you're so serious. You're acting it like it's Arthur Miller. He goes, your, your, your choices, they're so
0: subtle. And I go, I'm subtle? <laughs> you're telling me I'm subtle? How did this end up? I mean, did everybody make nice? and? Oh,
1: David came out. He, he came over. He hugged me. I said, David, David, you're, I love you. You know I love you. We talked about lots of stuff together. We, we were friends, mm-hmm. dear friends. Well, I went, I took about five or six of the guys out the night before I left. I took them for drinks. Very expensive evening of drinks. Those <laughs> English can drink. <laughs> so I said, David, he forgave me, forgave me. I go, David, I know you have forgiven me, but that will always lay heavy on my chest. It will always. He's also very, he was a pure comedian and stuff like that. But so English he, guy? Yeah, they were they were all English. I'm the
0: only American. Oh, yeah. interesting.
1: And uh, you know, he's. I'm telling you, he's lovely. They were not good in this particular play because they were not directed. There is a. It's. Let's face it. It's. It's a New York rhythm. Yeah, that show.
0: Yeah, zero Mustel.
1: You know, there's certain ways of doing English farce. This is not an English farce. And farce is tough to do. Farce is really tough. You have to mean every word. So much and yet not mean it. Right. You have to be so passionate about everything and yet know that you're not so serious.
0: And passion is a word that you've brought up several times. And it's what has guided my life and my career. If you don't have a passion, I was luckily coming out of the womb knowing exactly what I knew, what I wanted to do. Oh, you're lucky. Were you you lucky you had talent? (laughs) Well, that's up for debate, but (laughs) uh, I've just been persistent as hell. But... Your dad was a jeweler. Uh-huh. Your grandfather was a jeweler. That's correct. Did they expect you to be a jeweler? Oh, my
1: God, yes. So oh, I went to Northwestern, uh, and my dad wanted me to go to law school and business school because he always said, I want you to be a better businessman than I am. He, he was a great salesperson. He had a very classy jewelry store in Princeton, New Jersey, and my dad was beloved in that town.
0: So how do you make the transition? You go to Northwestern. You majored in theater?
1: No. Pre-law.
0: Pre-law?
1: Yeah, it was communication studies.
0: Okay. so With a
1: minor in history and English.
0: You and I have something in common. Growing up in Indianapolis, I wanted to be in show business more than life itself. Right. But how do you get into show business when you're in Indianapolis? I found out about Variety, the magazine that was the Bible wow. of the industry. And there was one store in downtown Indianapolis that had Variety. Love it, and, and it was expensive. Oh my God! Back then, I know. But it's still. It,
1: it was like you know, it's, it,
0: it, every day. It was, it was insane.
1: It's expensive, right?
0: So every Saturday, I would take a bus from my house to oh. downtown Indianapolis, get Variety, take the bus back, and read it cover to cover at least twice. Because it was as so close cool. to show business as I could get. So you got the weekend version. Yes, I got the week. Yes. yes. The big oh, well, thick yeah, one. That, I, okay? Yes, I understand. And theater was, I went to a synagogue that when my confirmation class I took a trip, I went to New York to learn more about our background. And what plays did you see? Pippin? The first show I saw. Was? Fiddler on the Roof. With? Herschel Bernardi had just taken over. You saw Herschel Bernardi do it. I saw yeah, Bernardi okay. do it. I'm 13 years old. Wow. And I see this and I go. What is this? I've never I've never been to a show. Uh-huh. And I was obsessed. So I I get variety and try to learn about the industry and the terms. Sure. So I found out that you did a similar thing, except you went to shows because you were close to New York. Yeah. And you would go and see a matinee, go to Nathan's and have a couple of hot dogs. That's what I did. Go see the evening show. An evening show. And I then mean? take the train back. That's what I did. And so, what age were you when you started to do that?
1: When I, I guess I must have been about 14, my grandparents took me to, my parents also took me to plays, and then I did what you did in high school. We Our show was Pippin from Second Balcony, you know, but I saw Pippin, uh, all the original cast. And and then, so at the time when I was able to go in, I, I'd say age 14, 15, I would, my mom would drop me off at the Trenton train station at 11, catch the train, get in there by 12.30. I saw uh, Lenny. Lenny with Cliff Gorman. I liked that show so much. I saw the matinee, and then I bought a ticket for the evening. Oh, my. And then I took the train home, and do you know what I asked my father? What? Was Lenny Bruce a real person? Oh, you didn't even realize. I thought he was like Robin Hood. I oh. thought it was a guy. I had no idea who Lenny Bruce was, but it's the first time I saw breasts on stage. <laughs> and the actress, they weren't breasts. They were tits. They were great. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my first time. I was a kid.
0: So you wanted to perform?
1: Oh, yeah. Fourth grade, I played the Polish boy from uh, in United, in Santa Claus Comes to the United Nations. Okay, that was fourth grade. Fifth grade, the show Oliver, uh, the, the play Oliver, or the, the movie Oliver, I think won the Academy Award or something, yeah. But or I knew of it. So I asked our fifth grade teacher, Mr. Hoy, for our play, Can We Do Oliver? And can i play Fagan? there was a some sort of you know the, the kids radio version with the you know, i want to say radio version or a shortened version that's a half hour and i did in this life one thing counts in the bank large amounts <laughs> okay so i did that but they, they they cut out his other great song i'm reviewing the situation that was not in i'm reviewing the situation <laughs> and they, they cut that but here's the weird thing is Mark Saradarian, who, you know, you, when you're a kid, you have people who are not just your friends, but people who you you admire so much you want to be them or you want to be their brother. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to be their little... So there was a kid named Mark Saradarian. How do you remember that name? Mark Saradarian. He played Oliver. I'll always remember him sitting in the middle of the stage singing, where is love? I don't know whether he was any good. But he just sat there and sang that song. I, I think he might have been terrible, but I wanted to be Mark Seredarian. Cut to today. Mark Seredarian, his son, works at Barney Greengrass. But no. I, I swear to God, doing what? Hey, like he's behind Cutting the counter. Locks? He's a manager or whatever he is. <laughs> My he's
0: favorite place, the best. <laughs> I was just there. Uh,
1: of course, Matzai <laughs> every Jew's favorite place. It's where you go <laughs> if you want eggs that we could cook at home. <laughs> yeah, and, but they charge twenty-one dollars. Oh, yeah. You go to I, I just Green's. spent forty dollars for lunch, for breakfast. Most expensive yeah. meal you'll
0: ever have, but fantastic. But it's fantastic. and, and they, hey, Everything's everything's great there. So you go to Northwestern and you graduate. What do you do? Watching
1: football one Sunday afternoon, I'm supposed to go to law school, and my dad's best friend, Steve Holzman, says, defer, go try, go follow your dream, because when you're 40, you are going to resent your wife and children (laughs) unless you try it. Okay, I defer law school, and I go to New York. My parents had a business trip. Believe it or not, in in Washington, they get together with a group of jewelers in various towns every year, from wherever the jewelry store is, and then you get to see the the town. So this one was Charles uh, Schwartz Jewelers in DC, and he had the best tour. We had a a um, a meal in the Smithsonian, the gems, uh, the really? gem room, and we went to there. We went to the White House, and he, because he's so. Big, we, we met the president and try, we went at tours of the White House. It was a great, like, six days. And then the world stopped and I had to go out into the world. I had to be an actor. My dad bought me contacts, contact lenses, because the photographer for the headshot said, you can't wear glasses anymore. You got to have contacts. Bought me contacts, headshot, resume, first and last month's rent.
0: Which was what then? $150 a month?
1: Well, he had a place on twenty-four. Uh, the night that I moved into New York was the night that Sid Vicious shot Nancy Spungin. Oh, man. That was on 23rd between 7th and 8th. I lived on 21st between 8th and 9th. So I heard the sirens and everything. And I'm this, you know, th- this middle-class kid from the suburbs. And I go out and I go look and it's the Chelsea Hotel. And I go, what's going on? And they go, Sid Vicious just killed his girlfriend. I don't think I knew who Sid Vicious was. <laughs> But now I do, and that was the night that I moved in to my apartment, 321 West 21st Street. The guy who I found, you you read Variety, when you get to town, you buy showbiz newspaper, which had listed all the auditions, and there were places where you could find roommates. Guy named Harry Hibberts, Hibberts, who if I could buy stock in somebody, I would, because he was about 6'4", looked like Robert Redford, as handsome as all get out. I don't know where he is today, but I'm telling you, I thought he was going to be a star. He was my roommate. The two of us lived on the fourth floor of a third or fourth floor of this place. How I don't know how much it was, but whatever it was, it was first month and last month. And I became a waiter, never got another dime from my father again, even in his will, never left me any money. Really? Yep. Because? Well, he left that all to his, to his, his second wife and I just never asked for it. And I always had money. Wow, when I would work, you remember the saloon across from Lincoln Center? Of course. Okay, uh, that probably opened in September, October. I started working there in May. I worked for about five or six months. There were days I would go in. I would I, I because I was a new kid. I had the morning shift from ten to set up at ten. The place opened at eleven, and then my shift would end around two or three. And then when the people who had the three o'clock shift I would say, do you want to go home? I'll work your shift. I would then work their shift. Then would come dinner. I asked them, would you, because it's like going to the gym. Getting to the gym is the most difficult part.
0: Once you're there. Once
1: you're there, you work out. Yeah. So for me, if I had nothing to do, then I had the whole day free. I knew I had the job that I had to work in the morning. Once I'm there, so I would work from 10 in the morning until four in the morning. Oh my. I know. It was long. Making a I- lot of money? a lot of money. I had four shifts. I had I had breakfast into lunch, lunch into mid-afternoon, early dinner, uh, dinner, and, and, and then into late night. I mean, I made a lot of money. I would collect the money up, and this is how stupidly cheap I am, put it in my sock, and take the subway <laughs> home at 4 in the morning. <laughs> I'm so stupid. Unbelievable. I was unbelievable. It was in the Portobello Theater Company. We did a play called the day the Whores came out to play tennis. That was my off-off <laughs> off Broadway. It's a magnificent play. Never so, heard of so that what, one. I know, but have you heard of Arthur Copet? Arthur Copet wrote "Oh Dad, Poor Dad." Oh, that he I wrote, know. He wrote the libretto to Nine. Magnificent, magnificent writer, and became a friend of mine. He lived on a hundredth Street. Okay. Oh, Dad, poor Dad. If you know what that that play is about, it's about a a very a very meek, Nebraskan boy played by austin pendleton if you know who austin sure. in, who had a stutter and this character stutters So worked perfect perfect one time i'm doing a play and arthur copet comes backstage was about six four a head of hair that was gorgeous handsome Looked like a baseball player he looked like a retired baseball player handsome handsome guy and he goes uh uh i go i'm richard kind goes i'm arthur Copet. i go no no you're not i couldn't but i expected arthur Copet to be this little wally sean type of guy and here's this stud but that's what his imagination was that's cool. he probably imagined himself as a as a, a a mama's boy who stuttered but he wasn't he was a stud And I since became friends, you know, went to his memorial. He's he's a great guy. Austin Pendleton must be in his 80s now. Oh, easily. Yeah. And I think he's going to be on Broadway. I think. Really? He's alive
0: and healthy because he works. I saw Erwin Corey when he was like 98 or something doing a show. Did you know Erwin? He was nuts. My words exactly.
1: Erwin <laughs> Corey was a nut.
0: Yeah, All right, Professor Irwin Corey. He Professor would Irwin come Corey. on and do uh, Mike Douglas and stutter. And uh, this will tell you. Uh, you'll you'll
1: know when w- when this was. Soupy Sales dies. I uh, who's who's the uh, the roast master of uh, of the friars? What's his name? It, uh, um, uh,
0: I know who you're talking about. Yeah, I can't think of his yeah, name. yeah, yeah, because
1: we're old. Yeah. Okay, so so he gets <laughs> up. And, uh, he's, and okay, Erwin comes in dressed as Erwin does with yes. the hat and the long coat and he's, and somebody's talking and he's going walking down the aisle. Hey, hey, said hey, hey, <laughs> how are you? Hey, hey, good to see you. Hey, hey, how are you? He's wearing a, either a Yankees or a Mets cap. I think it's a Yankees cap. Joining us today, a, one of the great, great comics of our century, a great guy, a great man, a great friend of Soupy's. Coming up here, Professor Erwin Corey. He gets up there and <laughs> let's say Soupy his wife was name, Marilyn. He goes, Trudy, Trudy, you yeah, know it. Know. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so he goes, soupy sales would be alive today. And Trudy, you know this soupy <laughs> sales would be alive today <laughs> if we had universal health care forever. And he's just going to like tackle him. Yep. And they get him off.
0: They got him off. Oh and I'm listening God. to this. I'm stuck in Philadelphia taking the train in. Wow. And, and I'm supposed to speak. And they have to start the thing. I get there when they're wheeling Soupy out in the casket. But I listened to that on the phone. That was the most insane thing. It
1: I was. I, say, I will always remember. I talk about passionate. Yeah. That guy had passion. But he had passion. But I was there. You were there. And I And asked me how well I knew Soupy. How well did you know Soupy? I've never met him, never <laughs> saw him. Why were you there? Because I read his obituary. There are certain people who I am who I am because of them. And I will meet somebody and say, I am who I am because of you. I was never able to say this to Soupy, but I am who I am because of Soupy sales.
0: Same way. I grew up in Indianapolis, but my parents and my mom was from Detroit, uh, Toledo. Yeah, And he had a show called uh, Breakfast with Soupy. Jeez. So from the time I was five, six years old, I started to watch him. Wow. And then he did Lunch with Soupy on WXYZ in Detroit. I used to watch him then.
1: But was that only in Detroit? That
0: was only in Detroit. Uh-huh. Then he did the syndicated show. Sure. Uh, that first uh, was in LA and then it was uh, out of New York. I
1: always thought it was New York.
0: Yeah. Initially when it was on- uh, WNEW. Uh, yeah, NEW. Yeah. And it was it was huge. So I become a regular at the Comedy Store in 1976. Wow. And Soupy was doing the main room. And um, I had met him in college. I lied to him and told him I was doing a documentary on what makes people laugh. He was playing the Playboy Club in Boston. Love it. And I spent two hours in his room, and I still have it on, uh, now I have it on uh, CD, interviewing him for two hours, talking to him about comedy. And when he got to the comedy store, I said, "I don't know if you remember me, but Sheraton Hotel." And he said he remembered me, and we became dear, dear friends wow. uh, from that point on. Wow. And in fact, I just talked to his wife uh, about a week ago. And wow. yeah, and Soupy influenced me in so many ways. That in many ways, what Soupy was to our generation, I became to another generation when I was doing my kid show on Nickelodeon. Wonderful. Yeah, and so how thrilling it was. That must- it, it was unbelievable that hang he was, out. He used to take me to the friars club for lunch all the time. I believe it. I believe Sitting it. there with soupy Sales at the friars club. I thought yes. I had died and gone to heaven. Right. And, and you can't eat because everybody's coming up to say hello. Everybody's coming and he's taking phone calls. And to see the transition from when he was this spry guy and then when he fell. and he Oh was no. With a walker and a cane trying to get up the stairs uh, there. And he would get on the phone and call his agent and say, uh, uh, I want to do match game. Can you, book? he never wanted to stop. He didn't realize that he, he really couldn't do it. We got him he, booked. He really couldn't, he, he he just kept wanting to do kept it. Kept wanting to do it. We got him booked as a favor on the Rosie O'Donnell show nice. towards the end. And Rosie was not particularly uh, enthusiastic about having him on. Right. And we had to do apologies because he really shouldn't have been on the show. He, he just, he wasn't there at that
1: point. Oh. I wonder, will I become aware that you got to stop? I did a play, again, at Bay Street Theater called, called I, I was a great role, uh, playing a judge. It was very difficult to memorize. Eli Wallach and Ann Jackson come backstage. Eli is as old, he's, I think he's dead, with, but nobody told him. <laughs> and he said, I want to do this role. He, there's not a prayer he could memorize no. it. Much let's have the uh, the energy to do it. It's a very difficult. It was a mammoth play, and it's a, it's very talky, and you have to have energy. you got to be listening the whole time. He couldn't do it, but that he said,
0: he wanted I want to wanna do this. I've always said to my wife, we've been to so many shows where we've seen people who shouldn't be you up shouldn't on be stage. Doing. And I always said, when I get to that point, you need a, like I went to see Bob Newhart a couple of years ago. He yeah. was uh, doing a show out of a casino in uh San, in uh, like Goleta, Santa Barbara area. And I was a little nervous about it. He killed, he killed. He was like in his late eighties and went up Wonderful. there and and was magnificent. And I love going to see performers who have all that history and all that background and can still get up there and do it. Uh,
1: this is a story told to me by Ray Seahorn of uh, Better Call Saul. Mm-hmm. She was doing a play and uh, they were in Washington directed by Linda Hope. And, okay, and then one day uh, Linda Hope says, my parents are in town, Uh, they want to meet you. They want to meet the cast, we're going to come over. They go to the Watergate Hotel. They go to a special elevator. They go upstairs, there are two lamplights lit outside the door with real flames. I mean, like, this is, we're not just going to a room. They open up and she realizes this is Bob Hope's daughter. Yeah. Never realized. Dolores Hope is still Active, and then she says, uh, "I'm going to get Bob. We're going to do so." She gets Bob. The red eye, eyes, red eyes coming out, hobbling, sitting there, you know, hands in his lap, head down. And she goes, "Come on, Bob, let's do a little number." He gets up, and he's 28 again. Really, and he just <laughs> is performing. And they're finished. And he sits down again. She said it was unbelievable. Somebody else said the same thing just talking about this the other day about Milton Burrow sitting in the car, hunched over, gets out of the car, goes up on stage, and he's a child again. I mean, they say Dr. Energy. I mean, mean, Dr. Theater. It is astounding
0: what it does to you. I was a page at CBS Television City when the uh, AFI dinner for Jimmy Cagney happened. And um, I met Frank Sinatra there. I met Cagney. He was the... I think he's the first. He, I think he was. I think he's
1: the first AFI honorary. So
0: I'm there. Rickles is out of his mind that he's standing next to Jimmy Cagney. He was like a, a child. i bet. In the song that Sammy Kahn wrote for Sinatra, he mentions Jack Benny. Jack Benny was doing a benefit that night, so couldn't come to the event. So CBS knew that I was a, a freak for show business, and they said... Jack Benny is coming to take a look at the show from last night. Would you like to meet him at the door? Oh, my God. So I thought I had died and gone to heaven, okay? So I go there, and Jack is with two young people who are his handlers. He's shaking. He's mm-hmm. not the Jack Benny that I knew, okay? How old and the first he? thing he how says to is he, me you know? is, oh, this is 1974. I know, but how old is he? He must have been late 70s, I think. Yeah, that's not old. It wasn't that old, man. but... But shaky. And the first thing he said to me was, "Because this is where he did the Jack Benny show. It's Television yeah, City." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the first thing he says to me is, "Do they still have that lousy cafeteria?" <laughs> That's the first thing he says to me. Okay, so we sit him down. Uh-huh. He had a hard time hearing. We had to pump up uh-huh. the uh, the volume. Uh-huh. Couldn't have been more lovely. Uh, there were no cell phones. I would have loved to have had a picture and an autograph. I didn't do it. I was trying to be as professional. But I sat in the room for an hour and a half with Jack Benny, seeing this shaky man. Two nights later. He's a guest on the tonight show and they say, ladies and gentlemen, Jack Benny. And he walks out and he's freaking Jack Benny. He did the walk. He talked to Johnny and somehow he turned it on for those, you know, eight or 10, ten minutes because the day I saw him two days before he was not, that he was man. not that person. And I'm always blown away. I was in, uh, New Orleans and uh-huh. in a casino, and Dolores Hope was playing the slots, and in a, on a stool next to her was Bob Hope. And he had a guard around him. And I said to the guard, may I say something to him? They said, he's very deaf. You have to talk very loud in his left ear. And I went up and said, you know, Mr. Hope, uh, you know, thank you for everything you did and all that kind of stuff. And he just kind of nodded. He had no idea who I was or what I was, you know, saying. And it's always tough to see your heroes in that situation. Oh, horrible. So... Norman
1: Jewison, yep. who is not Jewish, not Jewish, that's right, directed the movie version of Fiddler on the Roof,
0: with the Topol. With Topol, who was like 32 when he played that role. I
1: didn't know that. Yeah, okay. So he's he's doing that. Cut to years later, he's going to be directing Jesus Christ Superstar. Okay, and he calls up Josh Mostel at his house. And Zero happens to be there, and he's offering him the part of King Herod. And in the background, Zero Mostel yells out, Why don't they ask Topol's son?
0: <laughs> <laughs> that was terrible. Isn't that great? That's so inside, man. It is, it is sad saying. <laughs> Did yeah. you know Zero? Not once. No, huh? Not once. Never. Uh... He
1: was my hero of heroes. Why? Because he never made a subtle choice in his life, and yet he was always believable. Because he has my rhythms, because I think he's hysterical, because he's certainly not a leading man, No, which is what I am, and his looks are not leading man, which is certainly me, because every role he did is a role that I would like to do, and he was a great human. Was he really? But politically. You know, he's blacklisted. Yeah, yeah, his, know. He was a socialist. He was a commie. He was. And uh, I also admire, you know, what he said to... Uh, um, Jerry Robbins, I think, either at the beginning of, no, Jerry Robbins had a hand in, I think in the beginning of Fiddler, Mm -hmm. Jerry Robbins named names, of which he named Zero Mostel. And here, Jerry Robbins is going to direct Fiddler, Zero Mostel is starting. They're at the table, and Zero Mostel stands up, and he says, Jerry? I will never forgive you for what you did. I'm I'm making up these words, but this is the essence. I will never forgive you for what you did. Fuck you. Now let's get to work. (laughs) And he did, huh? And they came to terms. Interesting. But I mean, Jerry Robbins was horrible. Yeah. But he was a horrible man too. I I didn't know. But in the words of Stephen Sondheim, he's the only genius he ever knew. You said the true, the one true genius was
0: Jerome was, Robbins.
1: Was Jerry Robbins? Wow!
0: Yeah, you have no problems memorizing stuff. Apparently, take it easy, Mark. <laughs> I don't. However, what is that?
1: I, 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 what is your technique? No, it's not that. It's it's hard work. It is hard work. It's hard work. I did a two-hander this summer with uh, James Pickens. You were uh, in New junior. Jersey, right? I was in New Jersey, Long Beach, doing a two-hander written by Michael Tucker
0: from L.A. Law. You were at LBI. Near LBI.
1: Okay. Uh, I was in Long Long Branch.
0: Long Branch, okay. How do you know LBI? Because that's where I started my theater career back. I did, uh, did Grease. Do... And I played uh, Vince Fontaine at Grease there. Did you do
1: Surflight? Yes. So did I. Did you really? They have 14 shows in 15 weeks. Yes. Oh my... For $27 a week or 47 plus room and board. Maybe.
0: and But those rooms suck. And you did. And I, I did... Wait,
1: hold on. But you did Vince Fontaine. So yes. how many shows did you do? Uh, a week. No. How many shows that summer?
0: Oh, I only did that. And I So here was the story. So I was up at Angus McIndoe. Yeah. Okay, and a guy came. Uh, I was sitting at the bar and he came up to me and he said, I could have been you. I said, what does that mean? He said, I auditioned to be the host of Double Dare, but I didn't get it. And I said, what do you do? He said, I produce Broadway shows. I said, what shows are you producing? He said, well, currently I have Drowsy Chaperone, but I've done a bunch of other things. M-
1: I know who it is. You know who it is.
0: Okay. Kevin McCullum. Yes. And so Keep going. Uh, he said, I just purchased a theater. In Long Beach Island, New Jersey. He owned it? Uh, I guess he did at the time. And he said, um, let me get in touch with you. I don't know what we're doing this summer. And so uh, I got a phone call saying, we're doing Greece. Do you want to play Vince Fontaine? I said, do I have to audition? He said, no. I said, I'll take it. And so I was working in Philly at the time and driving every day to rehearse. And then for the four weeks we did the show, driving up and, and doing Love the show. it. Yeah. And that's where I met uh, Drew Gasparini, who was backstage with me. and drew introduced me to alex brightman who wrote my one-man show my
1: god how wonderful yeah
0: so it's all about synergistic
1: timing oh oh, absolutely you you say yes to everything because you never know what
0: road is good and that's the thing see passion Uh, when i first came out here people would say to me i'll hire if you stop calling me okay i was a pain in the ass But that's how I got from point A to point B. And if somebody would have told me at age 72 I was going to be opening in an off-Broadway show, I would have said, when I came out here, I thought, maybe I have a chance to host TV shows. But to be in theater, that'll never happen. I am, to use one of our terms, felling beyond, uh, this happened so fast that I'm opening uh, in February doing uh, The Life and Slimes of Mark Summers because... This summer, they called me and said, do you want to do the show again? And I thought, I, I'm too old. I can't remember the lines. So they convinced me to do Mount Gretna. I do Mount Gretna. It was a disaster. Why? They, because they, uh, the marketing and promotion director quit at the beginning of the season. I'm playing a 700-seat theater with 50 people in it every Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm beyond depressed. I, I understand. And so I said to them, I'm going to cancel Buffalo because I think my time has come and gone. Nobody really cares about seeing my show. They said, just I'm begging you. It's, it's going to be really great. So I said, I'll do a week. But if that theater isn't full and this isn't done professionally, I'm going home. So I get there and it was an amazing experience, okay? Okay. The theater was fantastic. The marketing was fantastic. We had people every night there. Love it, love it. Little do I know that opening next to us in the theater is the tour of Mrs. Doubtfire. The director comes in one night, unbeknownst to me, and watches our show. Steve Edlin. Oh, okay. And so- He comes backstage afterward and said, you ever thought about doing the show in New York? I said, every day, I just have no connections. He said, you do now. The next day, the Schubert organization calls me. They said, who's your producer? I said, I don't have one. They said, we'll connect you with somebody. They connect me with an amazing lady. Her name is Lisa Dozier Shackett. She calls me. She said, when are you coming to New York? I said, I'm doing The View next week. Can we have dinner after I do The View? She said, yes. We have a dinner that night. And she said... I want to do this. The Schubert's want to do it. Probably can't do it till July or August. Why did, I said they,
1: to... why did she want to do it? Simply by, his, by the director's? They asked
0: me to send them the script and a reference tape from Alleyway. I sent oh, okay. it to them. Okay. She said, I was in tears watching their reference tape. You know oh. reference tapes. They're in the back of the theater. There's one shot that, you know. Right, right. And she said, I really want to do this. The Schubert's want to do it. We're oh. looking at end of summer. Two weeks later, she calls me and said, the theater's available. Do you want to do it in February? I said, how is that possible? She said, don't worry. We can get it done. And we're doing it. I, Are you I'm, New World or East 59th? New World. Oh, That's great. I, I, I moved to New York. Uh, we start rehearsals January 29th. Our first show in previews is Feb 14th. We opened Feb 21. I haven't had time to get nervous. This has been the most insane experience in my life. And um, I'm looking for housing. I mean, it's all sorts of crazy stuff going on right now. But um, the advice you could give me, because my daughter was an actress, and she used to start when she was little. Suzanne? Uh, <laughs> uh, no, Meredith. And uh, <laughs> at dinner one night, she says to me, Dad, do you know that feeling before you go on stage where you have butterflies and you're sick to your stomach? And I said, yeah. She said, I love that feeling.
1: That's a, it's what you live for. And
0: that's what you live for. Yeah. And my wife said, you guys are crazy. Mm-hmm. Okay. But if I don't get that feeling, something's wrong before I walk on stage. I, mm-hmm. I need that to happen. Mm-hmm. Do you still
1: get nervous? Sure. Uh, look, I get nervous. I go, oh God, this again. Yeah. Uh, well, we were talking about going to the gym. <sighs> Getting to the gym, yeah, 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 I Once you're there, God, you feel great. You, live, you, you're you're, actually, you're you're doing what you do, and
0: it's what I live for. But when I started as a professional magician, working in the Magic Castle, right. we would do four shows a night. The last show was at twelve fifteen, the Lovers right. and Drunk show, mm-hmm. and it'd be ten after twelve. And I'd be thinking to myself, everybody who's normal is home asleep or watching the Tonight Show. Why the hell am I going out in front of seven drunk people to do my act? And I'll tell you why. Because unless you do it over and over and over again, whether you're in front of three or 300 people, you can't get good. And when people come up to me and well, say- that,
1: that, that, But that, that's not why I do it, though.
0: No, I understand that's not why you do it. Yeah. But when people come to me and say, I want to host shows, what do I have to do? And I say, you got to host, okay? If right. you want to be an actor, you got to act. True. So to think about doing it, and and I talked about doing this for freaking ever. When uh-huh. Bruce Valanche was doing hairspray, uh-huh. and I knew Bruce from a hundred years ago when I was a producer, I used to hire him. And um <laughs> he said to me, Summers, I've known you forever. Stop talking about it and do Absolutely. it already.
1: I always say, if you if you if you fill out your tax return and you are, you know, you've been waiting tables all year, put down I'm an actor. Yeah. Yeah. I'm an actor. Right. That's what you do. That's what you do. Can, can, I, can I ask a question? Yeah. Which I <laughs> asked a guy the other day because he's going to do a one-man show and I dread seeing it. But why do we need to
0: know your story? That's a great question. And I would ask you that same question. What's Mark Summers have to discuss? Well, Jewish kid from Indiana wanted to be in show business. Um, would do anything to get in front of a camera. Talk to myself on a kid's show. Uh, was a disc jockey at age 15, um, moved to Boston, and go to a school called Graham Junior College. Who did I meet there? Uh, Andy Kaufman went to school. Uh, You went to school there? Yeah. Uh, A guy by the name who's my dearest friend, Bert Dubrow, who created Sally Jesse Raphael and Jerry Springer Show. A guy by the name of Paul Fusco, who created ALF. I've I've worked with him. Sure. So, so, these are all guys. They all went there? They all went to the school. Why? Um... It was a school for misfits. We were all passionate about being in the entertainment industry. Bert grew up with Howdy Doody and Soupy. Mm -hmm. And so it was interesting to know that a guy who was a thousand miles east of me was watching and having the same uh, interest and excitement that I did. So you go to this college and all of us just wanted to play television or play entertainment. And that's what we did. We had two color studios, uh, a radio station, and we played, we went, to, we took our English classes and all that crap we had to take, but I was in that TV studio six, eight hours a day mm-hmm. and I hosted everybody's final project. Um, and whatever I could do to get on camera, to get comfortable, that's what I did. Sure. Uh, so fast And you forward, are, you succeeded. I succeeded. I was a page at CBS and I did warm ups on a bunch of television shows. Okay. Um, and I got my big break in 1986 when they auditioned 2000 people for a show called Double Dare Nickelodeon. I got the show and it put me on the map and it put Nickelodeon on the map. Right. Uh, it was my legacy to a certain point of time. Then I worked at Food Network for 20 years, but in the middle of all this stuff, um, I happened to be hosting the messiest show on television with schmutz and slime and whatever. Okay. And I had something that I didn't know I had called obsessive compulsive disorder. Okay, great. So now I have to go out amongst all the schmutz. The first 65 episodes, I dodged all the stuff, didn't get a drop on me. And uh, they did a focus group after the first 65 when we got picked up and they said, okay, uh, the kids want you to get messy. So I had to deal with my OCD while going out there and getting dumped on with whipped cream and and one thing after another. So that was story number one. You're now making me cry because you do have a point. So there's point number one. Then I got cancer. And uh, I was producing two shows on Food Network, Dinner and Restaurant Impossible. Wasn't feeling good one day. Did you blame the cancer on the gook? No, no. I I blame it on Philadelphia and the building I was working Uh, in, quite honestly. That's a true answer. Yeah. And so now I have diagnosed with cancer 12 years ago and had it overcame it had i've had it three times i'm mm-hmm. constantly on medication and then how great do you look uh, That's astounding oh well thank you i know the insides might not be as good but outside for 72 i'm not bad and then i was in a car accident where i broke every bone in my face and uh wow. yeah and so um it's about overcoming obstacles and how not giving up got me from point A to point B and the the icing on the cake and the cherry on the whole icing is me doing this freaking show in New York city. Uh, I can't believe it. It's insane. And so, um, that's kind of the show in a nutshell.
1: Just getting over the OCD.
0: I'm not over it.
1: You found the tools. Yes. I am well aware of those, not for myself, but I am intimate with some of those tools. Mm Mm-hmm. That OCD, especially during COVID, I can only imagine what that must have been like. Uh, because it's all about control, and you're out of control. The whole country was out of control. Still, it's out of control. The even without culture, yeah, it's out of control. So I can only imagine the emotional things that you, that everybody's feeling. But you get it, and it; they manifest. on you, I'm sure, in certain different ways. Yeah, yeah. So you you come to terms with that obstacle, and cancer. Well, plays have been written about cancer. It's just, it's the play is not an and then I wrote type of. No, play.
0: not at all. Not at all. Not at all. So
1: then you overcome that. And then another obstacle. And although you've overcome all three, at the end of the road, you get to say on a stage in front of an audience, good night, everybody, mm-hmm. with this show. Yeah. What an obstacle. And it's about fucking time. <laughs> it's true. Because you should have done it a while ago, although I you didn't. Although, thank God you didn't have the cancer before,
0: but, and thank God you didn't have the heart accident but before. But two stories. When they were taking Big to Broadway, the mm-hmm. first phone call came to me to be the star, and I said, "Why do you want me to be the star?" Big, of Big? they were trying to. Yeah, do you remember when Big? Yeah, was John the, Weidman did, yeah. The, did the 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 book right.
1: and uh, Maltby and Shire. I right, think?
0: exactly. Yeah, so they wanted me to be the star, and so I get the phone call of the kid or of the of of the Tom Hanks role. Wow, and so. um Why? Because when they called me, I said, why do you want me? And they said, I said, I can't act and I can't dance. And they said, it's about asses in the seats. Every kid in America watches your show and they'll bring your parents, their parents. That's why I want you. That's what he said to me. Okay. I, uh, I had a voice teacher in New York and I took lessons and the day of the audition, I didn't show up because I was scared out of my mind. Fast forward the tape. I told you a little bit about Mel wanting me to audition for the Vegas, uh, show. Uh, he set me up with a voice. Were you going to do it with Tony Danza? Uh, with Tony Danza. And, uh, I ran into Mel three or four times, uh, at Angus's and he sat at the table with me and said, are you looking good? We're doing the auditions. One thing after another, I didn't go to the audition. And when he saw me, he went to hell. So you can lie to get to Soupy Sales. Yes. You can't lie this way. No. Because you got to be good. You got to know what you're doing. And I knew I was out of my element.
1: Okay. I think that's very good.
0: Do you still feel that way?
1: No. Why not? Can you sing?
0: Well, that's a very funny story. Originally we had, uh, music in this thing and Alex came to me and said, look, they're going to be looking at you very critically as an actor. Yeah. Let's take the music out. Which is his way of saying he didn't think he can't sing. I I could sing, and and by the way, Gasparini wrote some beautiful stuff, but it's not in the show. There's no music in it. There's transition music that Drew wrote that's still in it, but I am not singing in it. Okay, can uh, you act? Apparently, I can.
1: Can you? I'm not talking about your own story, right? If you were given, uh, if you were given big, could you
0: have acted it at that time? No. But could I do Bloom now in uh, yeah. producers? Hell yes, great. Because my confidence level is is that high, and I'm also at a point in my life where I just don't care. Well, that's
1: that is that is everything. Yeah, that is everything. Everything. I just don't care. I just don't care. The world is Fifth Avenue in Tootsie, and we are Dustin Hoffman. The world revolves around. Why don't we see any of those other faces? Yes. That's the world. And it is unnatural to have a camera pointed at you with about 150 people behind that camera. And they're all looking at you. And you're saying, look at me. You're waving your arms. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. And that's not natural. It's not. It's not. But I love it. In things that you could do. Yeah. Stand up. Uh, hosting a game show. Look at me, look at me. I'm better than everybody. I got this job. That's money is telling me that I can do this. That's
0: astounding. When I would go on stage the first couple of months at the magic castle, I would throw up before I'd walk on stage. I was so nervous. And, and yet you still went on. I still went on, but there was a guy, classic old magician. Name was Senator Crandall. And he said, before you walk out on stage, say these words, these people came to see me. It will change your life. And it did. Wow. I kept saying before I'd walk out, these people came to see me. Like a lovely thought. And I went out and I could do That's my. lovely. Yeah. So I called you once because I heard you uh, doing a commercial. And I texted you and I said, uh, are you doing the voice of whatever this thing is? Right. And you said, I got to feed the kids. Okay.
1: What do you mean? Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. No, no, no. I, w- I probably did that. I never get voiceovers. Yeah, well, this and was... I probably got fired because they were out of their minds to use me. Uh, you were uh, you did it for a while. Yeah, no, know. I, I it was one year. Yeah, it was a year. It took forever to record. They we we, we recorded uh, every uh, a ten minutes a 10-second version a fifteen second oh, yeah. a two minute version. It was crazy. And I said, what are they using me for? This is for. Uh, uh what do you call it for um a diabetes yeah. for, for the for the insulin thing and i'm going no these are serious things what do you my voice does none of that i i i hate my voice i, do I you hate really? oh i hate it but when i'm doing a character it's okay but oh i can't listen to me that's okay I, I also don't like, don't like those, watching me
0: those gigs pay well because they're in and uh, i don't know if it was a buyout or if it was, it was a, a buyout it was a buyout so okay. sure
1: oh yeah oh i was everywhere for a year yeah and then they call up and say We've come to our senses and we're not (laughs) using you anymore. And the product still exists and they use it. It's a typical, you know, diabetes commercial. So are you selective in what you do? No. You'll take anything? Anything, anything. (laughs) Come at me. I do anything and everything, everything.
0: So you don't care what people say, uh, that Richard kind will do anything. If they said that, that,
1: that, that's, that's, you, you pray for those things. Yeah, But what? Th- there was a time when you didn't do commercials. Uh, I-, I'll do a com- I won't do a commercial as a character. I'll do a commercial as Richard Kind. Oh, but you won't play... But I won't play a character. Because? I've, I just saw Lisa Kudrow. There's something that I famously did. It's on YouTube where she recounts a story when, you know, she was the original Roz or something on mm-hmm. Frasier. Mm-hmm. And then she got fired from the pilot. And they had somebody else. And I said, that is so horrible a story how do you get up in the morning how do you walk out after being fired from such a great show a great part with the promise of so much money i don't understand and you know what she had? she said what a lesson is it because she does i didn't i didn't do it to hurt her no i said i, I as a matter of fact i commiserated a question. i co- i commiserated that's what it was is that i'm sorry oh my god how how it's so tough how do you how do you deal with that that with such disappointment. And her blessing was, Because you do. Because life goes on.
0: Yeah, life goes on.
1: Must go on. And look what life went on with.
0: Yeah. Not bad, huh?
1: Yeah, thank God she got fired from Frazier. Best thing that ever happened. Thank God. Yeah. Okay. But another thing I told her, was she she had guessed it before she did Friends. She guessed it on Mad About You. And uh she was a you know a recurring character. And her boyfriend. Her ex-boyfriend was Conan O'Brien. Really? Yeah. So she was supposed to go on, uh, playing in some sort of sketch or something like that. I said, "No, no, 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 no. You go on as Lisa Kudrow. Turn this down. You're, you're, you're good. You're big. Turn it down." I told her. She, she came to me. She said, "Should I do it or not?" I go, "No, no, no. You're, you're great. You, your career is on the, is on the rise. Don't, don't do that." No, I don't blame anybody for doing a commercial. Right. But right now, I won't play a character.
0: Tell me about East New York. I love that show. Everybody said the ratings were spectacular, and you get canceled. What the hell was that about?
1: The the business is changing in ways that make me gasp.
0: Yeah. It
1: was a great show. People really liked it. Yeah, It was appointment TV for us. Only picks up shows that were produced by CBS or their parent company, Paramount. Oh. We were produced by uh, warner brothers so if you're going to stream it who do you give the streaming rights to paramount plus or hbo max yeah
0: it yeah. was money they're in the problem lies
1: they're in the and yeah. it's everything because we could have been a tentpole show yeah. after three years i bet we would have been like you say appointment tv we would have been the thing that they say, okay, this is on at nine o'clock, let's see if we can build something oh, around yeah. it. it would have been like blue bloods. Cut yes, cut off their nose to spite their
0: face. So let me ask you this. Okay. I took many acting classes. Okay. Some people say when you walk in the room, it's almost the these people here to see me, I've got this role. And other people say, Go in, read the lines and get the hell out of there. What's your attitude when you walk in? Because I hate audition.
1: You have to believe that you are right for the role. So let's start right there. Mm-hmm. I'm a good actor. I read the script. Jesus, I am right for this role. you got to go in and say, all these people who I'm acting in front of, or who I'm auditioning in front of, they're not saying to themselves, oh, dear God, I hope Richard Kine gets this role. <laughs> I hope that Richard Kine makes some money so his children can eat. There's not one of them that says that. What they say is, oh my God, let me make Seinfeld money. I want to be rich. This is the thing that I want to have carry me so that I can do whatever I want. I go in saying, guys, you want Seinfeld money? I'm your guy. I hope that you cast around me as good as what I'm going to give you. I love that. And then we will make Seinfeld money. I think that is a healthy. And very obnoxious way to walk in. Could have room. helped
0: me though. I, I've never thought about Absolute, auditioning in that. I know in that direction. I called Brightman in the middle of our uh, run in Pennsylvania, and I was mm-hmm. having trouble remembering lines. And he was in the middle of rehearsing for uh, "The Shark Is Broken." Sure. And uh, he said, "Quote: This shit is hard, man." What do you mean? This shit is hard. Uh, memorizing, getting on stage, performing, yeah. interacting. Yeah. Uh, people think it's easy. It's fun, it's but very it's work. Fun. It's fun, of course. It's but work. it's work. But don't you like work? Oh my god, yes! I love, and I love work. this work. I yeah. love this work. I've never done this before, but let me just go through this briefly. Go ahead. Go ahead. Richard Kind is an accomplished stage, screen, and television actor. continues to redefine the term character actor, and it talks about Argo, Inside Out, Clint Eastwood's Hereafter um the outlaw where were you getting this from um i've uh online uh you know where i got this from you were on uh the henry lewis gate show finding your roots i
1: know as, yes
0: and uh and it talks about all these things tick tick boom the movies uh a bug's life cars uh young sheldon curb your enthusiasm law and order holy shit man uh, you've done everything you've done everything i've even done an opera at new york city opera. have you really yep and then you did sharknado I told you, I don't say no. (laughs) Well, that's what my point is. Somebody came and offered you a bunch of dough and you said yes, obviously. No. No? You just wanted to do it.
1: I did Sharknado. Well, you you call it Sharknado. I call it Thursday. (laughs) I wasn't working. I'll go do that. Okay. What the hell? Yeah. Okay. Who who was hurt by me doing Sharknado?
0: Not anybody. No. Uh, But, you know, I guess that's my question and you've just answered it. You've done amazing work stellar work especially in sharknado <laughs> no, no no but i mean it's just such a dichotomy of i read this and then i i just say it as a joke i'm not putting you down for it it's the same thing the phone rings there was a pr- i'll tell you a story that i heard so a friend of mine got called to do a uh a voiceover over at ktla we had an office down at universal and he said uh uh how much does it pay he says 500 bucks he said i'm not coming over there. Five hundred bucks." So it's the end of the day at five o'clock and he calls over to KTLA to the people and he says, uh, anybody end up doing that spot? He goes, yeah, as a matter of fact, we did. Why are you calling? He goes, well, I figured I could drive by for the 500 bucks. I'll do it. He said, who ended up doing it? He said, Dick Clark. He said, Dick Clark came over there for $500? He goes, yeah, we call him all the time. And if he's available, he does it. And at one point I asked the question and he goes, better in my pocket than somebody else's.
1: I get to work. Yeah. God put me on the planet to do something. Right. And he was working today, all the time. Today, he works, he works 18 hours a day. So that day he was only working 17. Right. So let me go do this. Yeah. So now I can make it 18. Exactly. Uh, yeah. It has nothing to do with the 500. Five, he wipes his ass with $500. <laughs> exactly. It had nothing to do <laughs> nothing with the do with money. The money. He, we want you it. to do this. This is what I do. Yeah. I'm coming over. I'm coming over. And, I'm coming over to do what I do. And I always admired him for that, by the I way. I do too. Okay. Yes, uh, LA- and that guy who didn't get the five hundred dollars yeah. is not Dick
0: Clark. No, he's not, and he isn't to this day. To this fact. day,
1: past year we had a strike. Yes, I did three plays between April and well, I was supposed to keep doing the fourth, but I did the Durango uh, Theater Festival. I did a two-hander out in Jersey for four hundred bucks. Yeah. that's not good. that doesn't pay my housekeeper. No, four hundred bucks a week. And and but they it's made me pay, pay, but it's what I do. Yeah. And I wanted to see if I could memorize, still memorize. I've never done a two-hander, and I was with a great actor named James Pickens Jr., who's on Grey's Anatomy. So, and I thought the play was really good. I had a lot to say. Was oh it? my god, I talked. Uh, but we we both did talk for ninety minutes. Got
0: a nice oy, review oy. though. Oh yeah.
1: People loved it. Yeah. Oh. Uh, regional theater always gets nice reviews because it's it brings people to the town yeah, they have exactly. a responsibility uh, i never listened to, i'm sure you got great reviews doing greece doesn't, doesn't matter by the way i did greece at Surflight uh, no. Theater. no yes what part did you play roger <laughs> years before hysterical. years before that's what i wanted to say that's you hysterical. know it's one of those, those tangents I, I i did greece at uh uh, along with doing, you see, that, that's what I said about uh, Surf Flight. Yeah. Things change. You probably did it when it was, it was equity, right? Yes. That's why I got my card. Yeah. I did non-equity. And after doing it, I said, I got to get my equity card. We did 14 shows in 15 weeks. God. And not just shows. We did MAME. We did Fiddler. We did uh, uh, um, uh, Little Abner. We, w- Little I mean, we, we did, we did Brigadoon. We did all uh, plays, a play a week. We worked seven nights a week. When we were finished at, let's say, ten o'clock, they would take down the set and build the next one because we opened on that Monday. Yeah, yeah. we did. We worked seven nights a week, and uh, we did children's theater on Wednesdays and Thursdays.
0: Was the ice cream thing open of next? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what was that called? The um, I forget. Oh, but you and I lived the same life. That's oh, hysterical. oh my God!
1: But you know who else worked there? Michael Ritchie, who ran uh, the Center Theater Group, who ran, really? ran the taper and stuff. Um, yeah, there's a lot of people I who agree. worked at, at Surflight. It's it was great. It's it was my education. It's my it was r- great. really Second City was my was my Harvard. That, 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 Second that, City was yeah. That, that was a, now you talk about that. I was doing what I was doing six nights a week there. Yeah, six nights a week. Uh, Friday and Saturday doing two shows in Chicago, in Chicago, improvising every night, but, fri- so but Friday, so many people came out of that
0: thing. Yes. You gotta do one thing. Uh, cause we got, <laughs> we got to close this place down. Uh, you know, everybody does impressions uh, of you. Yes. Uh, Brightman does a good one. I think Steve Rosen does the best one. No. Um, but you said you do an impression. I saw somewhere about the commish. This is, uh,
1: the, I, I, uh, everybody talks like me. I can't do me. <laughs> I really can't. But if you want to do me, uh, when I used to play poker, they say I, I was—I used to be a, a recurring character on a show called The Commission. Right. So they go, "Can you? Uh, can you play next next Tuesday?" And I go, "I can't. I'm doing a commission." <laughs> exactly. So that's that's me. <laughs> Here's doing Richard me. Kine.
0: That's doing me. Doing me. Uh, Mark Summers uh, unwrapping uh, Richard Kind. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Mark Summers unwraps is a production of Believe Limited created by me, Mark Summers and Jessica Richmond. Produced by Keith Corneluck and Jessica Richmond. Executive produced by Patrick James Lynch and Ryan Geelan. Post-production support from Joshua Sterling Bragg and Believe Limited. Don't forget to subscribe or follow the show on your favorite podcast player and, if you really love it, why don't you leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Mark Summers: Unwraps.